Thanks, buddy. Thank you. Oh, thank you for that. I, uh, yeah, I found out, like, today that I have been your, your COVID worship leader. And so if you're like me, there's, like, trigger warnings sometimes when you see things that happen during COVID, and you're like, oh. So hopefully you don't feel that when you see me right now. Uh, it's not bringing up any bad emotions, but... Honestly, it is a joy and delight to be with you. Uh, I was also just feeling nostalgic because the hotel that I'm staying at while I'm here is, uh, is the very hotel that we had some, some pretty important prayer meetings and vision meetings before this church even began. And uh, it's just, I feel like a real sense of, of privilege and blessing just to think back to those days and just when there's just a few people praying for what God might do, and then just to have the opportunity to come and see already what God is doing. It's amazing, and it's, it's my joy. So, so thankful to be here. Hey, if you don't have a Bible, um, we want to give you a Bible. And so slip your hands up, and we got some ushers that would love to, to give you a Bible. And I've been told that that's yours to take home. If you see anything else you want to take home, just do that. It's, they're a very friendly church. Um, <laughs> we're going to be in, uh, in Luke chapter 15 tonight. And uh, just before we even jump into the text, let me just, let me just pray. Uh, so, Father, I'm so thankful for your word. And uh, I just ask, Holy Spirit, make us attentive. Let us be listening to your voice and your leading right now. Fill me and use me. And would you, uh, would you speak to your people? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we're going to be in Luke chapter 15. If you grabbed one of those Bibles, that's page uh, 510. And uh, we're finding ourselves in what is the most well-known parable of Jesus. Um, it's famously known as the prodigal son, also known as the two lost sons. And uh, there's so many like movies and paintings and songs and artwork that's been made around this, this beautiful story because it reveals so beautifully the heart of the father. Uh, and so I love this parable. I love this teaching so much, but... Anytime that we have something that is very familiar to us, we are at risk of saying, hang on, I've been there, I've heard this, There's, and you just start checking out and tuning out and missing what the Lord has for you. So I do not want that to happen right now. I want us to lean in to what God's word has for us. A brief summary, this parable is about a lost son, two lost sons, but one today who squanders all that his father gives him by recklessly living a morally bankrupt life. But he eventually comes to the end of himself and comes home to the Father. And listen, anytime you preach a message like this about a reckless young man who's blowing up his life, doing all sorts of things, there's, there's a tendency for me to go, like, I'm, I'm preaching to a church. Like, we got a lot of things dialed. Like, we're, we're, you know, we're buttoned up, we're clean, we have things together, or at least that's what we want to present. And so I am just, it's not lost on me, but I just want you to still press in to know, listen, our hearts are prone to wander. Um, and so maybe that is you. Maybe you are literally in the middle of living a life that is morally bankrupt, and this is definitely for you. Or maybe you've been following Jesus for 10 years, for 20 years. This is also for you. Because the truth is, until we reach heaven, we are perpetually in a pattern of wandering from and returning to the Lord. You are either moving towards God or you are moving away from God. And so this evening, no matter where you are in the cycle of your walk with Jesus, there is something here for you. We need to be reminded of what causes our hearts to wander. We need to remember the moment that we receive spiritual clarity of our desperation. We need to be reminded of the goodness of the Father. 
And also at the end, I believe that there's something here uh, that is just a truth that I just believe is stunting so many Christians in their walk with Christ. I just think it's something we keep tripping over. And so we're going to get there. I'm excited for it. Hang with me. Uh, But before we dive into the text, just a word of context. We're in Luke chapter 15, and uh, this parable is the third of three parables on lostness in this chapter. In order to understand why Jesus launches into these parables, we need to read Luke chapter 15, verses 1 to 3, to get the scene. And so it says this, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And so he, being Jesus, told them this parable. So, Pharisees and scribes, They're playing the greatest hits. They're complaining about Jesus. They don't like Jesus. They don't get what he's doing. They're complaining because Jesus is fraternizing with sinners. And because Jesus is eating with sinners, he is signifying his acceptance of their behavior, according to the Pharisees. They didn't understand the heart of Jesus or the purpose of the kingdom. In fact, they already literally came at Jesus for this exact thing. If you just flip back to Luke chapter 5, It says this, it says, He, Jesus, answered them, saying, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so they're coming at him here, and then Jesus, he takes a different approach this time, and he launches into three parables of lostness. The lost sheep, the lost coin, and the two lost sons. And maybe it's been a minute since you've been in parables, so just a word on that. Parables are an earthly story with a heavenly meaning, and they are used to reveal the message of the kingdom to some while concealing it to others. So Jesus was revealing to these groups of people, again, why he was here. He is here to save lost people. Jesus came to find lost people. And so we have tax collectors and sinners And you have Pharisees and scribes, both totally lost. And in our story, you have a younger brother who squanders his life recklessly and an older brother who has it all together but has a heart of bitterness, both totally lost. So one of the purposes of this is to show us that being lost can look a few different ways, right? So today we're going to look at the younger brother, and this was part of a two-part series in Y'all have to miss out on part two. But Pastor Earl did a great job in Oakville. And if you want to watch it, you can go hear it. It's awesome. Or you can just read it on your own. But that leads us to point number one, which is this. The rebellion. I am prone to wander. Uh, And let's read right now verse 11. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. So, this man has two sons, and it was Jewish custom that the father would have divided his estate and that the sons would each receive their inheritance after the father had passed away. The Jewish custom would have also dictated that the eldest son was entitled to twice as much as the other son. So in this context, the older son gets two-thirds, and the youngest son gets one-third. Uh, but the youngest son does something that is like, it's just unthinkable, He demands that his father gives him his share now. And in order for us to understand like the height of the offense, the gravity of this statement, this would have been like him going to him and saying, hey, dad, I wish you were dead. I'm not interested in waiting around for you to pass away. 
I don't want to be in this family. I don't want to wait around under your roof any longer. So give me what I deserve so I can get out of here. Like that's what he's saying when he comes and says, give me my share of the inheritance. And and just like this is an unforgivable offense. The son wants the father's goods rather than the father himself. In fact, uh, what's even more staggering uh, than the son's request is the father's response. Um, what would have been an, a, expected from this as the people were listening to Jesus is like the father should have grabbed his son by the collar if he had one and just dragged him outside of the, the family and just booted him out. Like, like that is what he deserved. He deserved nothing. He deserved to be kicked out of the family and forfeiting all of the blessings that came with the father's house. But that's not how the father responds. The father says he divided up his property. Now, the English loses some of the, uh, the beauty of this text with these two little words. The word property used by the son and the father are not the same word in the Greek, and it's, it's actually important. You see, the son asks for property, and that's the Greek word, usia, and that word means like capital, money, stuff. He asks for the stuff, but when the father divides his property, that word is bios, and that means he divides up his life. He, in essence, tears his life apart for the sake of the son and gives him what he asks for. He isn't just giving away some money or writing his son a check. He goes above and beyond to give him himself in this request. And like this response would have floored people. They would not have had a grid for this. They would have think this is just an act of foolishness and of recklessness on behalf of the father. So let's pick up in verse 13. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. So not many days later, aka, as soon as he could, he got out of there. He traveled into a far off country. He had dreams of grandeur and adventure was awaiting him and he just couldn't wait to get out from dad's roof. He needed to spread his wings and fly to a land that accepted him for who he was, where he could experiment, where he could break free from the laws of home, where he could be whoever he wanted to be. Like, just imagine the place that the son was in. Like, he, his heart had just gone so bitter and resentful to the father. Maybe he's just doing the chores, just like his other brother was. Maybe he's plowing the field, but he's muttering under his breath, I just can't wait to get out of here. I can't stand this place. I can't believe all the rules that are being imposed on me. I can't be who I want to be. I can't do what I want to do. I just need to get out. Maybe there was even some subtleties of like, I I can't stand my father. Like this was the wrestle going on in his heart. And so he gets his way and he gets out of there. You see, he was being lured away to the far country by the lies of the land. The lies of the land were calling to him. There was a narrative being formed in his mind as to what was awaiting him. And so what are the lies of the land? Well, the text doesn't specifically say, but here's just a few of things that it it might have been. Number one, maybe it was freedom. The lie of the land, number one, is freedom. You aren't really free unless you can do whatever you want, whenever you want. And clearly you can't do that in dad's house. So come to the far country where you can be truly free free. That's line number one. Line number two, friendship. 
No one understands you or accepts you for who you want to be at home. So come to the far off country where people will affirm you and do whatever you want to do. That's lie number two, friendship. Number three, fulfillment. This lie goes something like this. The purpose of your life is to do whatever makes you happy. And so if being at home under the rules of dad isn't making you happy, come find that. Come experiment. Come into the far country where you can find hedonistic pleasure and true fulfillment that you can create for yourself. That's line number three. Line number four, fun. Well, plowing the field at home with dad sure isn't fun. And so come to the far country where your life can truly be just about pure pleasure, having fun with your friends. These are the lies of the land. Now, I don't know if exactly if this is what drove him to leave, but I can tell you that these are the lies of the land now, right? Like, I don't think all of this has changed that much. Like, we have an entire month dedicated to seeing the lies of the land promoted. There are parades literally centered around the lies of the land. The narrative goes like this. You should be free to be who you are. Come find fulfillment in a community of friends that affirm you as you create your own sense of self-worth. And all of this is just at the small cost of your soul. That's the lie of the land today. The world is pulling him in and he's dying to go and try his hand at his newfound freedoms. And so the son, he does this. He gets exactly what he wants. He takes his property from his dad and he goes and he blows all of it on his reckless pursuits. This is the heart of rebellion on display. Like it's, it's obvious. And some of you recognize like this story rings a little too familiar for you. In fact, maybe once upon a time, this was you. Maybe this is you right now. But some of us, I think, uh, we might not be in this place in this moment. So Warren Wearsby helps us understand this. He says, the far country is not necessarily a distant place to which we must travel. Hear this, because the far country exists, first of all, in our hearts. Oh, that's so helpful. The far country had his heart long before he got there. And the far country has some of your hearts right now. You can be sitting in the four walls of a church and have your heart lost in the far country. Some of us are spending massive amount of time thinking about the far country. Some of us are like actively pursuing it right now. We love money. We love power. We love status. We love wealth. We love self-gratification, self-importance, self-indulgence, all of these self, 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 self. Like that is the lies of the land. That is the pursuits of the far country. And then now more than ever, we have these little gateways into the far country that sit in our pockets. And we're just a few clicks away from just like indulging all of our deepest, darkest desires. This is not just some, something for once upon a time. There are some of us right now who are in the far country. Our hearts are just, they're there. They're there. Do you ever find yourself wanting the father's goods rather than the father himself? So where's your heart right now? Is it madly in love with the father or is it chafing under his rule, dreaming of another place? Our hearts are prone to wander, church. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Your heart, my heart are prone to wander. 
Warren Wearsby also says this. He says, the dissatisfied heart leads to the disappointed life. And now we're about to see that with point number two. The realization, I need help. I need help. Verse 14, let's pick up. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country, and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. So this is familiar. We know this part of the story. But listen, these things are not a coincidence. This isn't bad luck. This is what happens when you choose to sin. These things didn't happen to him. These things happened because of him. Scripture says you sow the wind, you reap the whirlwind. And that's exactly what's happening in our text right now. He finds himself reaping the whirlwind of his actions. Notice he goes from being a tourist in the far off country to being a citizen of the country. In other words, he went from sightseeing to slavery. And he got there really quickly. Some of you think you are tourists in the country. You think you have a handle on your sin problem, but if you're honest, you look around you and you're a slave in it. You can't leave. He's hired himself out. You are a full-blown citizen in the far-off country. But this is what happens. Like Sin over-promises and under-delivers every single time. And if we just, like if we can get that and believe it and live like it, that is a massive dose of spiritual maturity. Sin overpromises and underdelivers and we're seeing it right here like what about the lies of the land maybe we can pull that back up what about the lies of the land what about your freedom he's now bound to a citizen working for food you're not free what about your fulfillment he began to be in need it says no one would help him where are your friends at and this definitely isn't fun when you're eating pig's food Like this is the lies of the land illustrated. These things cannot work. It has let him down. Sin has overpromised and underdelivered. And so he comes to the end of himself to the point where he's starving and he's looking at the pig's food and he wants it. And it is precisely when he is at the end of himself that he is met with clarity and perspective because that's how the Lord works. He lets us get to the end. He lets us get to a point of brokenness, of poverty. And then he comes in with such clarity by his grace. Verse 17, let's read, let's keep reading. It says, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Just treat me as one of your hired servants. So in this moment, he not only understands the foolishness of his current state, but he understands the severity of his own actions. He says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. He isn't saying, I just made a mistake. I just, I got a streak of bad luck. He understands that he has sinned against God and he has sinned against his father. You see, one of the evidences of a changed heart is looking at our situation the way God sees it. Um, I don't know about you, but some of the circles that I walk in, and I've been guilty of this, we can get a little cute with our language about sin. Just made a mistake. You know, 
I'm doing mostly pretty good, but there's like a couple things I maybe kind of are struggling with. And it's, you've heard that, right? Like that's, that's what happens. We get cute with our language and our sin, but one of the evidences of a changed heart is when we look at our sin and we see the offense from God's perspective. I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you. R.C. Sproul says this, here we have the essence of conversion. That moment in a human being's life when they come to themselves and they realize that they have sinned. Not that they have made a mistake or been guilty of error and judgment, but that they have sinned. In true repentance, contrition breaks through. The illusions are shattered, the games are over, and the man said, I will go and tell the truth. That's what happens. That's what genuine repentance looks like. The illusions are shattered and the games are over. And that's exactly what's happening to this young man. Repentance begins with a proper recognition of our sin. Only then can the Lord step in and move in us. He fixes what is broken. And the son is broken. He's at the end of his rope. And uh, he's got some clarity that he needs to go home. Notice he doesn't believe that he's worthy to be called a son. And, and, he's, and he's right. I mean, he squandered his inheritance. He has no right to come home. But he knows that being a servant at home is better than being a beggar in a foreign land. So he, he, uh, he rehearses his speech and he, uh, and he stands up. I just, I was, just picture this, right? Like live in the text a little bit, put your imagination on. He's, just picture this young man. He is skinny. He is sitting down with the pigs in the filth, in the mud. He is hungry. He is starving. He has no possessions left to him. And he's just broken. He knows, I got to go home and face dad. But I just, I know I'm not worthy to be called a son. And so what does he do? Maybe he just picks up his things. He starts to brush off the dirt and he starts to rehearse under his breath. What am I going to say? Like, what, how, can I, how can I go home and face these people? They know what I've done. And so I just imagine him taking step after step. I, I know I'm not worthy to be called your son. I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you. And he's just rehearsing this under his breath as he's building up the confidence to go home and face dad. And maybe he's trying to even just drown out some of the noise of what, what people might think, like his brother, his friends, the people he abandoned. Like, what are they going to think? They see this guy rolling in and they just, I guess your plan didn't work out, did it? Who do you think you are? You have the audacity to show your face at home after what you did to our father? The accusing voices are ringing in his ears, and so he's, he's just rehearsing what kind of speech he can say. Some of you are in this spot, like right now. You feel unbelievable shame as a result of your sin, but you aren't sure what you can or can't say. The voices in your head are too loud, but you know you know you need to come home. The one who tempted you to sin is now standing over you and he's accusing you. He's saying things like, how could you? How could you do that? But you know you need to come home and you don't know how. And if that's where you're at right now, let's just keep reading. It gets real good. Point three is this, the return. I am welcome home. I am welcome home. Verse 20, here we go. And he arose and he came to his father but while he was a long way off, I love that. While he was a long way off, his father saw him and he felt compassion. And he ran and embraced him and he kissed him. And then here comes the speech. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven 
And before you, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand, put some shoes on his feet, bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. Why? For this, my son was dead and now is alive. He was lost and now he is found and they began to celebrate. Like there's so much I love about that and we are bound by time. But of all of the scenarios that the son was running through in his mind, I don't think he was running through this one. I don't think he was anticipating the response of the father. You see, the father, he wasn't cold and indifferent. He hadn't forgotten about his son. He wasn't just carrying on with business as usual. His heart was broken. I just imagine what he must have been doing. Like he must have been just like, you know, trying to carry on with work, but every now and again, he would just like glance over the hill that his son wandered off, just saying, is today the day? Is today the day that my boy is coming home? Sproul says that the son left the father's house, but he never left the father's heart. And that's just so true. Like the son, never, the father never forgot about his boy. And then the glorious moment does happen. Maybe he's just sitting on, on his porch after a long day and he's looking over that field and then out of nowhere this little, this little shadow, gaunt figure begins to walk over the hill and his heart begins to beat. The father's heart begins to beat because he knows, he knows that's, that's my boy. And so he did what Jewish patriarchal figures did not do. He takes off running. He is sprinting to go see his son. You see, it was, un, it was undignified to run, but the father couldn't care less He sets aside his dignity, his formality, his office, and he runs unashamedly to the son. It says, but while he was a long way off, the father saw because he was watching. The father felt compassion because he loved the son. And so the father ran and embraced because he simply couldn't wait. That is the heart of the father. And that is the heart of our heavenly father. So the son, right, he launches into his, feet, uh, into his speech. Like the father couldn't even wait for him to come home and take a shower and do all that stuff. So the son, he launches into the speech. I, father, I've sinned against heaven. I have sinned against you. I'm no longer, and the father doesn't even let him finish. He interjects and he says, bring the robe, get the ring, put some shoes on this guy. This is my son. I thought he was dead and he's alive. I thought he was lost, but now he is found. He calls for the best robe in the house. Who do you think had the best robe in the house? Dad did, that's right. So the father takes his royal robes and he drapes it over his son to clothe him with dignity and honor when the son deserves shame and dishonor. Tim Keller, on this point, he says this. He says, the best robe in the house would have been the father's own robe. The unmistakable sign of restored standing in the family The father is saying, oh, this is so good. I'm not going to wait until you've paid off your debt. I'm not going to wait until you've duly groveled. You are not going to earn your way back into this family. I am going to simply take you back. I will cover your nakedness, your poverty, and your rags with the robes of my office and honor. For those of you who are in the far country right now, you need to know this is the response that you will be met with if you come home. 
This is exactly what your heavenly father will do for you. There are no mean accusations. There are no I told you so's. There are no how could you's. You are met with the love and grace and honor of your heavenly father. And you say, well, I don't deserve that. You're correct. I don't deserve that. We don't deserve that. But this is the heart of the father. All he says is, my child, welcome home. And I, I, I think that like some of us still wrestle with the economics of this relationship. Um, like Christians, like I'm talking about believers, me, you, us. I think we wrestle with the economics of this relationship. We're so stuck on this phrase, I'm not worthy to be called your son. And it's keeping us from embracing our identity in the family. But here's the deal. The son was never worthy to be called a son in the first place. Because that's not how it works. A commentator on this passage, he said it like this. He says, you are not a son by worth, but by birth. You see, you cannot earn your way into the family. You were born into it. And so why do we continue to insist that we have to earn our way back in? There are a lot of Christians, myself included, and we, we just, we struggle with this. Like, at some level, we understand that we are saved without merit, but like we're pretty convinced it's merit that keeps us in the relationship. And so what happens? We get into this pattern of sin and brokenness and we wander off, we're prone to wander. And instead of returning home to dad, we're trying to put some points on the board, trying to clean ourselves up, trying to reconcile the situation in our own strength. Listen, it is not your merit that keeps you in this relationship. It is his love and it is his grace and it is his honor, not yours. We are not children by worth, but by birth. Listen, that doesn't mean that your obedience and holiness doesn't matter. But hear this. We work from our identity in the family. We don't work for our identity in the family. I'm going to say that again. We don't work for our identity in the family. We work from it. I think, I honestly believe so many of us are just, we're trapped and we're, we're stuck and we just can't figure out, like we get so discouraged and beaten down and then Satan gets a foothold on us and he's standing over us, and he's keeping us from going home. I just want us to understand the heart that the Father has for you and for me. God chose you before the foundations of the world to be adopted as one of his children. It had nothing to do with what you could give him. He just chose you because he loved you. In fact, he knew that our sin would separate us from him. And so out of that love, He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross in our place, taking our punishment and my shame. And we were dead in our sin and we were blinded to our very own situations. We didn't know we were slaves in the country. And so what happened? He opens our eyes and he sees to help us see the state of our sinful hearts. And it lets us get an honest assessment of where we're at. And so when we turn with repentance and faith to Jesus, Listen, we are spiritually born again into the family of God. We are adopted into the family. And in that moment, we receive the robes of righteousness of Jesus Christ. And we have peace with our heavenly father. We are welcomed home. And one day we will spend eternity with our heavenly father. We've sung about that today. In fact, scripture talks about a banquet. This guy, he kills the fatted calf and they're about to have a party and one day there's going to be a party 
And if you're a child of God, we're at the party. We're at the banquet table with our heavenly father. And it is there where we will be celebrating his goodness and his mercy and his kindness and his redemptive work in our lives. Like that is the gospel. That's the good news that we hold on to this today. We are not children by worth, but by birth. Sproul says, one more time, he's so good, man. No one will ever get into the Father's house by pleading their own worthiness. Only those who acknowledge their unworthiness will get there. So listen, there's at least two groups in the room, at least hearing this right now, and so that means there's at least two responses. The first is for those who are truly, eternally lost at this moment. You do not have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. You have never bowed the knees. You have never confessed him as Lord. You are, right now, you are a slave in a far country to your sin, and the consequences are grave. Eternity literally hangs in the balance. And maybe today the Lord has brought you to the end of your rope, and you know that something's got to change, and you need to come home. So what I have for you is you need to repent of your sin. You need to leave the far country behind and place your faith and your trust in Jesus and his finished work on the cross and you will receive everything that we've just talked about. You get the robe, you get the ring, you get the shoes, you get the banquet. That's what comes with being a child of God and that's available to you right now. The lies of the land have had their way on you and they are over-promising and under-delivering. And some of you are just you're starting to figure that out. And I pray by the Spirit of God, you figure it out fast and you come home. And the second group is for people who are, you're in the family, but you've wandered off. You've wandered off from the fold of God. You are sightseeing and you don't realize how dangerous sightseeing is. It's the same message for you. You are hung up on trying to earn your way back and you feel unworthy to approach your heavenly father. And some of, like, some of you here might have some, like, some real father wounds. Like this imagery of a heavenly father is a tough one for you to swallow because of your background. I just pray that you don't get held up on that. You'd understand the heavenly father is wonderful. His love is perfect. He treats you with gentleness, with kindness, with goodness. This is the response that you will get. You are in the family and nothing can change that, but you need to remember the love of the Father and you need to come home. The Father is standing here tonight with arms wide open and he's longing to see his children come home. You will be met with mercy and love again and again because there is no love like the Father's love. And that's the irony of this story is this thing's called the prodigal son, but this has a whole lot more to do with the father's response of love, right? Like what a picture. Even as I read this, as I teach this, as I've been prepping it, like I just, I am just blown away at what the father has done for me. Like I am so unworthy. Like I, I pray that we're getting a little blown away with the love of the father. So I plead with you right now. Come home and experience the amazing love that the Father has for you. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for your word. We're thankful for how it reveals who you are. And this is a story that has just given us a beautiful framework and a lens of your character. 
the heart of the Father on display, that you didn't wait for us to try to clean ourselves off. You came running. You sent your son, Jesus Christ, to come and live a perfect life, to die on the cross in my place for my sin. And he rose again on the third day. This is the the greatest demonstration of love, is that you sent your son. And so what I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would be applying this truth deeply. Would you save lost people right now? For those who are wandering, would you bring them home? Please. We ask, we love you so much, and we're so thankful for the love of the Father. In your son's name, amen.